KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. This is KYW News Radio in depth. I'm Matt Leon. We will one day, hopefully sooner rather than later, be in a place where COVID 19 is in the rearview mirror. And we were wondering how will the pandemic be framed in history? One would think it would command a lot of attention, the effect it's had on everyone one way or another, but maybe not. For discussion's sake, let's look back at the 1918 flu pandemic. Prior to COVID, just how familiar were you with the history of that? Why didn't the 1918 pandemic get more room in our history books prior to COVID? And could COVID be remembered or not remembered the same way? For this discussion, we reached out to Nancy Hill, the museum manager for the Mütter Museum of the College of Physicians of Philadelphia. Now, the museum actually has an exhibit on the 1918 pandemic's impact on Philadelphia. And that exhibit was actually first put up just a few months before COVID. Eerie, right? It's called Spit Spreads Death, and it is still there if you want to go to the museum to check it out. I just saw it myself. Well worth your time. And this is a very interesting conversation. Give a listen. So to start this discussion, it's really amazing. And I guess a pandemic's a pandemic, whether it happens 100 years ago or now. But there are a lot of striking kind of overall uh, similarities to the 1918 flu pandemic with what we've seen with COVID-19, no? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of parallels to be made between our modern pandemic experience and the 1918 pandemic. There's certainly a fair share of differences. But, uh, you know, every day, I have people saying to me, how did you know? How did you know what was going to be coming? And the truth is, we only sort of did. The WHO has been saying that we were due for a pandemic, viral pandemic for a while now. Uh, But we, we, we chose this subject for the exhibit, knowing that there would always be something public health related in the news. We were kind of thinking it would be, you know, an Ebola outbreak in another country or perhaps, you know, drug resistant syphilis in Kensington, something like that. We didn't realize it would be quite so big, you know, so close after the opening of the exhibit because, I mean, COVID closures started about six months after we opened Spitzbride's death. So, um, you know, we, we knew there would be parallels, but we didn't think it would be quite so uncanny. One of the things that's fascinated me, well, first of all, I think the 1918 flu pandemic, we've done podcasts on the history of it, but just for people, just to kind of set the table here, can you just give me a quick synopsis of how devastating this was in 1918? Sure. Uh, do, do you want Philadelphia specific or kind of a global perspective? Uh, how about both? Okay, sure. So in 1918, again, this was a the first kind of global pandemic in universally recorded history, I would say. Again, obviously, we've all heard about the Black Plague and things like that. But when we talk about pandemic versus epidemic, I think this was one of the first kind of global pandemics that was exacerbated by travel. And so the pandemic broke out while World War I was going on. And so we were moving people and equipment around the country and around the world in a way that was not typical for the time. So, I mean, today, one sick person goes to one major hub of an airport, and within three hours, this thing is out of control. In 1918, they didn't have worldwide travel like that. And so it was kind of a uniquely perfect storm of the World War overlapping with the outbreak of this viral pandemic and really spreading it around. And so it's unclear where the pandemic started. Uh, There are some, the the primary hypothesis is that it started in the American Midwest at a military training camp. Really difficult to know that for sure at this stage of the game, unfortunately. 
But again, if that's the case, it would certainly make sense because those people were trained and then they were sent off all around the country and into Europe to uh, fight the Kaiser. So worldwide, this had this had a global effect. There's varying reports from 20 to 50 million people dead worldwide. Philadelphia was one of the hardest hit major cities in the U.S., um, depending on how you slice it. Pittsburgh's up there, too. So Pennsylvania was really having a tough time, both uh, east and west of the state. In Philadelphia, we did a full death certificate audit from uh, the start of the pandemic in September of 1918 to kind of the end for Philadelphia in February of 1919. And we recorded 17.5 thousand deaths from flu specifically. Again, people are still dying of other causes. So it's pretty catastrophic in Philadelphia in particular. And there's a number of reasons for that. But it's something that has shaped a number of families for generations. It's shaped a lot of things in the city in ways that we don't necessarily recognize or are conscious of today. But, you know, this was a pretty massive event, of course, compounded and in a lot of ways overshadowed by the First World War. Yeah, that's kind of my, for something that did the damage that this does, I think if you and I went on the street in May of 2019 and asked people when the last global pandemic was, I would venture to guess we might get 10 out of 100 that would be within 10 years. Yeah. And I mean, like this, this was massive. And yet prior to COVID, it was kind of relegated to a footnote in history. Now, I personally have three hypotheses for that, but I'm curious, do you agree with that? And why do you think that was? Well, I think there's there's a couple different contributing factors, but the biggest one would be biggest two that I would say would be kind of the patriotic commitment to the war effort and, you know, honoring the war dead. And the other, I think, would honestly just be collective trauma. So in 1918, the worst, the two worst things you could be were a slacker and a hoarder. A slacker being somebody who doesn't buy their share of war bonds or do everything they can to support the war effort. A hoarder being someone who hoards, you know, rationed materials and things like that. And so, you know, by 1918, we'd had a few years of this war propaganda, right? There'd already been three Liberty Loan drives. You would not be able to escape these posters that were like really xenophobic and, you know, beat back the Huns, stop the Kaiser. And it's always some like big, heavy browed German dude with the bayonet. And he's always dragging somebody's daughter away. So people had had years of this kind of, you know, uh, patriotic propaganda. And so to detract from the war effort and distract from the war effort was very taboo. And so I think the first part of it is that the war was the most important thing going on in everybody's mind. And it had been for years. And so this pandemic hit and it was obviously extremely devastating, but there was also still this world war going on. And despite the fact that more soldiers died of influenza than died in combat, you know, these things were still seen as kind of separate rather than conflating events. So I think that's the first big cause is that people at the time were really focused on the war effort and didn't want to distract from it. The second thing I would say is that this was extremely traumatic and people did not want to remember. They did not want to talk about it. So, you know, talking again about the war. So here's an entire generation of young men who's gone away. And if they come back, they're coming back pretty traumatized, you know, either from the pandemic death or from the nature of the fighting that they experienced, you know, remember, this is the debut of gas warfare. So there were some pretty horrifying things going on. And they're coming home. 
to a public who's also now just seen, you know, mass graves in cities. This was a very kind of bring out your dead plague situation. Dead, dead people were piling up in the streets in Philadelphia at certain points. Here's a traumatized group, group of young men coming home to, a, you know, a public that is excited to see them and excited that the war is over, but they've also been through their own harrowing experience that's separate from the war. And so, you know, they could either choose to celebrate the armistice and move forward, or they could talk about and remember the trauma. And I think that people just really wanted to get out of this dark, dark phase they were in. So, you know, to kind of answer your question succinctly, I think it's a combination of emphasizing the war and minimizing the trauma and trying to move forward out of this really dark time. How much also might, and those were two of the things that were on my list. And the third one is a pandemic is something that it's very difficult to put a place and say, this is a place of remembrance or this is a memorial because it's, it's an infectious disease. It's everywhere. And since it's everywhere, there's not a place that's associated with like the start of it. You know, there's not like a memorial you can go to and that, allows it to kind of cycle out of history a little now. Yeah. I mean, that is something that we wanted to change with this exhibit. Part of why we wanted to do this is create a space where there was kind of a collective memory opportunity. And we do hope during the life of the exhibit to get one of those. uh, I don't know if you've seen the blue and yellow historic markers around the city. Right. We are hoping to get one of those placed, uh, hopefully outside the Macy's. And there's kind of an interesting story there. I can tell if you're interested. Absolutely. Uh, So to go back to kind of the start of the question. Yeah, I think the only there there are some public memorials in other cities, but they're quite small. And honestly, most of the memorials to the flu dead are are in cemeteries, their headstones or their kind of mass burial markers. And that's not the most approachable place for a lot of the public today. We've really changed our attitudes about cemeteries and burial a lot since, you know, the 19th century. And again, we were kind of just turning into the 20th century here. So it was also, you know, very much a time of transition for kind of how Americans interacted with death, which again, I think the pandemic had a hand in for sure. Um, To explain the Macy's situation, so uh, in 1918 in Philadelphia, there was a committee that was, they were meant to oversee the conditions in the war industries factories. Again, Philadelphia had a ton of war industry. We actually had an extra quarter million people living in the city at the time just to work in the war industries factories. And, you know, they were supposed to be making sure that the quality of, you know, work safety was good. People were being paid fairly, things like that, but they didn't really have all that much to do. And so when the pandemic hit and these, you know, infrastructure of the city essentially failed, this committee saw that there was something that they could be doing that was a little bit of a better use of their time. And so the department store that was there at the time was a Wanamaker's or or I think it was a Strawbridge's actually, either a Wanamaker or Strawbridge's rather than the current Macy's that's there today. And they effectively were given a phone line at the department store that was like the flu helpline. So you could call the department store, say flu, and somebody would be there to answer the phone and hear what was going on. And they would try to send someone out to assess your needs. So if you were saying, hey, I'm in Kensington, there's a ton of corpses piling up on the street. We don't know what to do. 
then they they could send somebody out to where you were to assess the situation and hopefully bring the resources there that were needed. That could be nurses, that could be food. Um, they also helped coordinate people who ha- who owned cars could volunteer as ambulances, and so you were given a green flag on your car if you were a volunteer ambulance driver. Kind of, you know, we think today about funeral processions and you get the little magnet flag. It was kind of like that, but you had a green flag, and that meant you were an ambulance. So. This was kind of the center of the citizen effort to try and address the infrastructure failures that came about because of the pandemic. All started, you know, where there was a phone line. So now let's look to today. Is it possible, and it seems impossible now, but could we see the COVID-19 pandemic folded into history the same way, or do you think it will be different? I think it will be different, and I hope it will be different. I think that... Science literacy is is different and better now. I still think there's lots of room for improvement in science literacy, but people understand what's going on a lot more. And I do think in terms of kind of cultural development, we are much more willing and able to talk about things that are stressful and traumatic. I mean, it's it's one of these things that sounds kind of silly, but I say it all the time. If, if Twitter had existed in 1918, my job would have been so much easier because there just isn't material culture and there's not a ton of oral histories from the time. And so we, we work to collect some family histories, but most of the people who lived through 1918 are dead. Well, all of them really, but, you know, trying to find, find these like first person accounts and find these more personal and emotional artifacts has been really difficult again, because of the war and because people didn't want to talk about it or think about it. You know, these would be stories that maybe someone heard their grandmother tell one time sort of thing. Whereas now, you know, people are venting their daily frustrations, their experiences with getting vaccinated, their experiences with conflict relating to mass compliance All of that is being recorded on social media, which I think will serve as an excellent, you know, look back for future historians. But also people are processing what is happening in a way that was not going on in 1918. People are much more willing to be vulnerable and communicate the emotional impact than I think we were likely to see in 1918. I would be surprised if this got kind of swept out and overshadowed by historical events in the way that 1918 did. I think we all are able to recognize how much COVID has, how how much COVID is interlaced with all of, I mean, we've certainly had historical events going on, but we all recognize that COVID is part of those situations. How much do you think that idea of a universal trauma where people don't want to focus on it going forward, like we've got all the things that happen in the moment, kind of the the TikTok of the pandemic, if you will. How much do you think, because I, I personally think we might be surprised how quickly people compartmentalize this and put it in the rearview mirror. I don't mean historians, but I just mean the, the everyday people. Do you think that could uh, that could lead to it feeling further away as we get farther away from it? I think so. Uh, I hope I hope not in a lot of ways, but I, I definitely can see the appeal of wanting to be like, it's over. I'm closing this chapter and I'm putting it behind me. But what I what I hope people recognize is that this, it's not going to be just over one day. Right. You know, we this is going to be a slow transition 
out of out of pandemic mode. And honestly, it's looking like it's not it's going to go from being pandemic to endemic. So it's not going to go away. It's not going to be eradicated like smallpox. It's just going to be something we learn to deal with. Right. So I hope that people don't completely forget about it because there's a lot of lessons to be learned about public health and, uh, you know, crises management that I hope we take into the future with us. But I can definitely see the appeal you know, you get that second shot and you say, nothing can do anything to me. And you pretend it didn't happen. I would discourage people from doing that because you can still transmit the virus to other folks, you know, spread it around as someone who's, who's uh, vaccinated. But, you know, I, I think it really will depend on the person and how they choose to, to deal with this. I do think a lot of the younger generations who've grown up a little bit more submerged in kind of therapy talk and knowing <laughs> knowing how to process these things in a way that feels a little bit more transparent and productive. I think that, that those younger kids will probably keep it in the forefront, but a lot of older folks who have already been through a lot and maybe don't have those same emotional coping tools will just want to put it behind them and forget about it. And do you think we will see, you know, you talk about wanting the marker outside the Macy's, do you think we will see a push once this is really in the rear view mirror for, and I don't know what it would look like where you would put it, but, but uh, memorials remembrances to what COVID-19 did to society. I, I think that that would be, that's a really interesting question. And personally, I mean, again, I'm a little bit biased because I work in the history of medicine, but I think there should be, I mean, this is over half a million people dead in a year, which again, is more monumental than any military conflict we've ever had in this country. So, you know, the way that we have the Vietnam Veterans Memorial and the 9-11 Memorial that lists all of, you know, the victims or the the fallen folks of these events, I think it would be important to record the names of everybody who was killed by COVID in the United States, because this is, this is something that didn't need to happen this way. And there's not, I, I don't want to start a political conversation by blaming anybody. There's, there were failures on a number of levels that could have minimized the deaths death toll here and um i think that's worth remembering and not not wanting to repeat and again i think there should be a place for collective remembrance especially for those who lost family members you know parents children coworkers, anything like that um i think for the, the healing process it would be helpful for them to have a place to go and see their loved one you know documented and remembered and you mentioned the the spit spreads death, which talks about the the 1918 flu pandemic in Philadelphia, and it's a wonderful exhibit at the museum that I just me and the family went to last week as we're recording this. How was it received prior to COVID? I know you guys had to shut down, and since you've been able to have people in, what has been the reaction from people? Was it something that at first people just took in and oh that's interesting and moved on, and what? do you hear from people now that are going through it? I think in the beginning, um, you know, pre-COVID, we had kind of a two different parties of response. Initially, I think the response was, I didn't know this happened. How did I not know this happened? And kind of being baffled that such a huge event kind of slipped through slipped through the cracks of everybody's history education. And the other, the other camp were people who had heard about it, but more personal anecdotal stories, people whose families had been around when this was going on, 
family stories had been passed down about it. Uh, either they had an already existing real strong personal connection or something clicked and they realized that this was what their grandmother or whoever had been talking about. And they didn't realize that it was a collective experience. They kind of heard the story, thought it was just like a messed up thing that happened in their family history and moved on. But they didn't realize that this messed up thing happened to everybody in Philadelphia. Again, even if you didn't lose a family member, you couldn't not see the effects of the pandemic in 1918. So, you know, prior to COVID, we kind of had two different camps. After COVID, it either became, wow, I can't believe this has already happened. Or, you know, again, that kind of emotional response because they're much more able to connect with the history because it's so similar to what they're going through. In a, in a strange way, we we did gear this exhibit to be more about the experiences of the average person at the time, rather than just talking about, you know, doctors and political figures who had influence on how things unfolded. We really wanted to convey that history doesn't just happen to like important men in labs and big buildings and stuff like that. It happens to everyone all around you. I'm glad that people are able to connect with that and, and, you know, kind of immerse themselves in it. I do wish that they didn't have to have their own pandemic experience for it to be, you know, as impactful, but um, it's definitely, you know, we had to put up a panel after we reopened that basically explained that we wrote this exhibit before the COVID pandemic, because we asked a lot of hypothetical questions in it. Right. And these questions aren't hypothetical anymore. Right. It's not about what would you do if this happens? It's what have you been doing? How did you respond? And, um, you know, these calls to action that we had hoped to kind of imbue in people uh, when we first conceptualized the exhibit, you know, it would have been nice if it had a little bit more lead time to educate the public. But it seems like people are really, you know, they're answering those questions every day now. That's it for this episode of KYW News Radio in depth. You can listen to the podcast free anytime on the Odyssey app, and you can find it wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Matt Leon, and we'll have another episode out soon.